Again, if you're taking notes, uh, simply we're looking at the heavens opened part three. The heavens opened part three. And where we left off with these, uh, these angels, uh, these cherubim, with their four different uh, heads and their likeness of uh, the lion and the man and the ox and the eagle, and we looked at all that uh, last week, and uh, they were, uh, we left off with verse 14, uh, one, just one point to make on this, and then we'll look directly at the wheels. But it says, uh, the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like flash of lightning. Um, now remember it said, as far as their direction, that the living creatures only went forward. Um, one of the things about anything that comes down out of heaven is it's the, the dimensions don't fit in our understanding. Think about it. Something that always goes forward, yet I saw it go back and forth. And yet it only goes forward. Um, he might have even felt weird writing that. But that is exactly the description that he was given, at least in his understanding, plus what the Holy Spirit uh, authorized, all Scripture being God-breathed. Um, but they only the creatures would only go forward. And, and the way I kind of... Uh, think about this is they are always going forward and here's why if you have four heads right no matter which direction you're going forward isn't that interesting and that's one simple way and that's a really overly simplified way of thinking about this if you have four heads the creatures have and each one looks north east south and west no matter what direction they go they're going forward, as authorized by God. And yet, they also are moving as fast as lightning, literally. You know, we use that cliche, uh, we can, the waitress said, I can get you breakfast as fast as lightning. Not really, right? Because it would be on your plate as soon as it came out of her mouth, right? But this, what he is seeing, they really are moving at such great speed, and yet... The Lord is allowing him to be able to visualize and see them moving at this great speed, and yet always moving forward because any direction they go is forward. In addition, it's perpetual movement as well. See, the angels were created to serve God night and day. What are the angels around the throne? Holy, holy, holy. They never stop. The only time they stop is there in the book of Revelation for the span of about a half hour when great judgment is about to be poured out and all of heaven becomes silent for that short period of time. But beyond that, they say, holy, 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 never stopping. It's perpetual service unto the Lord. It never stops. And they never get tired of serving. And when you really have the real deal, when you've been born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll become tired, but those that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles. We, we were created for perpetual service as well, which fell apart in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? Uh, with sin. We were created uh, to serve the Lord at all times and not to be tired or weary. We do get tired or weary, but the Lord refreshes us. Angels are a little different. Uh, they don't really are, they're not refreshed in the same way. They don't get weary. It appears that they just are just like, just like in the presence of the Lord, we will someday not be weary either. And they, uh, they have uh, the presence of the Lord at all times, uh, giving them this great power and the energy and what's needed uh, for this perpetual movement. Uh, if you remember in Genesis chapter 28, remember Jacob puts his head on the rock and, uh, and he has this vision or dream and even little children's books have the Jacob's Ladder. And remember what Jacob sees, says, Then he dreamed, in Genesis 28, 12, Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set upon the earth. Its top reached up into heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending. Perpetual movement. The angels were going up and down on the ladder. And similarly, uh, though not the exact same uh, scene, 
we do have some similarity, this perpetual movement that God has the angels. It just, to me, signifies that God is always sending them and doing things nonstop. But not aimlessly busy, like we can sometimes become, but always doing things that the Lord has them doing. Even if it's just crying out, holy, holy, well, not just crying out, holy, holy, but I mean, if that's their, if that is the singular service that an angel has, is to do that, that in and of itself is constant. And we see in the 24th verse also related to these living creatures, which we'll uh, touch on as well with the, uh, the throne, but uh, if you look in verse 24, the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult like the voice of an army. Uh, we know that these angels, as we talked about last week, uh, they come as a picture of God bringing judgment. Certainly the glory of the Lord, we're going to, we, we already can see some of the glory of the Lord here, and we'll see more in just a second as we look at the particularly verses 26, 27, and 28, but these angels have come as servants of the Lord to bring and administer judgment that is coming to Israel. We know that from the second chapter where in the third verse, as we looked at last week, God is going to be sending Ezekiel to a rebellious nation and he'll be warning them of what is coming. And most assuredly, judgment is coming uh, when he receives this. And most assuredly, for the world, judgment is coming. And most assuredly, for our nation, judgment is coming. Uh, no nation has ever been able, not even God's beloved, the apple of his eye, Israel, has ever been able to mock the Lord to completely ignore what he has said, uh, to completely reject and resist all of the grace that he has given and not be punished and judged for it. Eventually, a line in the sand is drawn, and, and this is what's coming for Israel. But for Ezekiel, as we uh, talked about when we were last together, the Lord's not coming to him with judgment. He's coming to him with a message of judgment. Uh, he himself has already been carried away into captivity. Uh, he has been removed from his home there in Israel. And uh, as a priest, as we have previously discussed, uh, he's not now working in the temple, which he should have, starting at the age of 30. But of course, he is maintaining the witness of the Lord and gathering other uh, Israelites or Hebrews or those that uh, have also been brought from Israel, and continuing to proclaim to them, our God has not forsaken us, continue to center them on keeping the law of the Lord, keeping the word of God, uh, treasuring it, continuing to pray. And uh, so the Lord's not coming to him in judgment, but he's going to have a difficult message when we get to that to deliver. Now let's take a look at the wheels uh, starting in verse 15, now as I looked at the living creature, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature uh, with the four faces. So uh, picture, if you will, I actually had a photo that I still didn't get up back there. Um, but if, if you think about a flat plane, let's say a big rectangle, about, I'm just giving you a mini scale, a flat plane of uh, something that is as beautiful as crystal. We'll get to the firmament in just a second. But Below it, kind of on the four corners, if you will, here, 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 and here, uh, is four of those living creatures, each living creature with four heads, but also four individual cherubim, and their wings are two wings, two more, and they can stretch them this way, they can go this way, they can cover the, the body, they can stand still, they can move them at, at rapid speed, like the sound of an army, which is significant because it's also imagery of what God is bringing his army for judgment uh, relative to their, their sound. Uh, and, but beside each one of them are a wheel inside of a wheel. So a wheel inside of a wheel, which would look like a sphere, right? Just like, uh, so if you have one wheel this way, and the one wheel is east-west, and the other one is the other direction, then you have 
kind of like they're crossing over like that. And you have the wheels, and then they have eyes all around them on every direction. Uh, tells us that uh, the eyes on the wind, uh, in verse 18, as for their rims, they were so high, they were awesome. Their rims were full of eyes. These are massive wheels, huge wheels uh, that he has seen. We do not know for certainty, I'll be very clear on this, we do not know for certainty everything that these wheels represent. If anyone ever tells you they know everything these wheels represent, they don't. We would be very foolish to say we fully understand every biblical description of heaven. We don't. That we would understand everything that relates to the glory of God. We don't. Everything that relates to his angels. We don't. Everything that relates to his throne room. We don't. We can understand a little bit and some of the things that God says are rather clear. They're, they're very straightforward. But that only gives us uh, an inkling of what is seen and how to understand it. You know, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you'll recall in the second verse it says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, that's a rhetorical statement. Paul's saying, if someone existed that could understand all mysteries, but they didn't have love, it would profit them nothing. But the point Paul's making as well is that no one understands all mysteries. That's the lesser point. He's mainly talking about love in that chapter. But it's worth noting that even if someone uh, could understand all mysteries, telling us that clearly some things remain mysteries. And some of the things that are in the Scriptures, we can understand some of what God is saying. We understand more than enough for it to be teaching us something but not necessarily everything that God will reveal when we see these things face to face in the presence of the Lord. Uh, I do believe these things are recorded to us, though, uh, to see some things clearly and to learn and understand more of God's glory, more of His character, more of His power. All of these things, clearly God wants us to understand these things and not have them escape us. So these wheels, though, for Ezekiel, they were something new. He hadn't seen them before. Uh, he was a follower of the Lord, a, a love the Lord God, and, but he had never seen these before. He had never seen anything that came down out of heaven. At, when the heavens parted, these were all new to him as they would be to you or I. Um, but they were new to him. And uh, what's interesting, though, is his contemporary, if you remember, who is his contemporary? Anyone remember? Daniel, they're either, they're almost the exact same age, and potentially they are the same exact age, but they're very close in age. Uh, some Bible scholars believe they were the exact same age. Others believe they were very close in age. I believe at minimum they were very close in age. Both were carried away to Babylon. Daniel was carried away first. Ezekiel came in the second siege, and both were carried away to Babylon they were contemporaries of each other. They no doubt knew one another, uh, but they were both used by the Lord to write two pivotal books. I mean, well, you know, Daniel writes Daniel, and Ezekiel writes Ezekiel, and we've got uh, tremendous insights in both of those books, both prof uh, for prophecy and things that have yet to take place, but also in what they saw as related to the glory of the Lord. Both were in Babylon at the same time. Again, Daniel went there first, but they were both there in the same time. Uh, turn with me to something that Daniel sees in chapter 7. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. It's the next book over. Ezekiel, then comes Daniel. So just take a little bit of a right-hand turn. Hold your place in Ezekiel 1, but turn over to Daniel chapter 7 and look at verse 9. Daniel sees the throne of of God as well. Now he sees it, apparently, uh, the difference between what Daniel sees and what Ezekiel sees is for Ezekiel, God brings this down out of heaven. And these four wheels, which are actually, in a sense, kind of like eight, eight circles, <laughs> eight wheels, but wheel inside of a wheel, so you get four spheres, but individual 
eight individual wheels, but the uh, wheel inside of a wheel looks like almost like it's mobile, like a chariot comes down out of, like the God brings the very throne room down out of heaven to Ezekiel. Now, even that, does that mean the throne isn't still there? We have no idea what that means. God can keep the throne there and bring it down and take it somewhere else. I mean, there's no limitations to God. But what Daniel seems to see uh, is, is not necessarily it coming down in the heavens parting uh, over the river Chabar there, but Daniel seems to see something that's perhaps up in the heavens. And look at verse 9 in chapter 7. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. And look what's next. It's wheels, a burning flame. Both these men, both prophets, both uh, contemporaries of one another, both see wheels related to the throne room of God. Um, and he, he mentions them here as these wheels, a burning flame. So Daniel also sees uh, perhaps the wheels that are described by Ezekiel. Again, I don't know. I'm only saying that both of them mention wheels, and it's pretty significant that they both uh, are contemporaries, and they both uh, hear from the Lord in relatively the same time period, and both of them see these uh, wheels that the Holy Spirit has them write down. In uh, 1 Chronicles 28.18, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim on the top are actually referred to as chariots in 1 Chronicles 28.18. Even there, giving us some sort of symbolic, uh, perhaps, uh, understanding that God's throne um, with these wheels related... um, he moves through any situation, that he can come to the aid of his own people, that, uh, that he also can bring with him both our deliverance, for those of us that are uh, in the Lord, faithful to the Lord, covered by the blood of Jesus in, in, in the te- case of the New Testament believer, uh, but also that God can bring his throne of judgment directly to any situation as well. So again, uh, many different thoughts on what this may mean. Uh, we certainly don't have all the answers, but there's certainly some interesting um, uh, imagery with both the wheels and also this uh, reference in First Chronicles uh, 28.18 of the chariot. The will of God, I believe, is certainly present in the wheels. Look at verse 20. Uh, wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. Because where the Spirit went, the wheels uh, uh, because there the Spirit went, the wheels were lifted up together, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Now this is interesting, because the living creatures are not the wheels, they're separate from the wheels, the wheels are beside the living creatures, but it says the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Um, what Spirit would be in all that are righteous? Well, the Spirit of the living God. The Spirit of the living God is in us, the Spirit of the living God would be, and the will of God would be in His angels, uh, performing uh, His will at all times. The wheels the, themselves, uh, representative of, uh, again, perhaps judgment, but also the will of God is present in that judgment. So wherever the will of God says to go, they go. Wherever the will tells the, spirit, the, the creatures to go, they go. And they're all in perfect harmony. Whenever the, the wheels go, the creatures go. When the creatures go, the wheels go. They're in perfect harmony. The Spirit in them or the will of God in them. So I think the, uh, the Spirit of God is clearly here. The Spirit of God always fulfills and proclaims the will of God and always does this through the servants of God. Servants of God are always responding to the will of God. The Spirit of God and the will of God are also mysterious, aren't they? Jesus said uh, in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the will of God. 
Now, what scriptures tell us about the will of God no longer becomes mysterious. It is the will of God that all men be saved. That's not mysterious now. It's still mysterious why Jesus would die for a wretch like me and you. But it's not mysterious what God has said. He has said that he desires all men to be saved. That's the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord that Jerusalem would repent and believe in the Messiah. They did not. We know that it was clearly the will of God that they would, but Jesus said of them, you were not willing. They weren't willing. God was willing to forgive. They weren't willing to repent. So we understand many things clearly about the will of God, but there's also things about the will of God that we don't necessarily know. For example, you might wonder, how long can America get away with this, that, or the other? Right? You would say, well, the will of God is that sin must be punished or that this must happen or this must... And those things will come to fruition in God's timing according to God's will. So we don't have answers to some of those things, though we clearly know what he has said in his desire for a nation, a church, a family... Uh, but we will sometimes see things that scratch, we scratch our heads and say, you know, why, I wonder why God allowed so-and-so uh, to pass away. But we know that the will of the Lord is perfect, right? So we don't have the answers to why God does or doesn't do certain things. Those are mysteries to us. They're not mysteries to God. So his will is always present, but whether he's going up, this way, forward, backwards, this, that, or the other, that is up to the Lord. The express will of the Lord here, though, uh, is to pour out judgment. The wheels representing the judgment of God is moving forward. It's coming down. It's finally going to take place. It's going to move forward. It's going to advance no matter what Israel, in this case Judah more specifically, no matter what Judah uh, thinks. uh, The wheels of God's judgment Also, we can look at uh, the wheels and the circular motion of wheels, wheels moving in that circular motion. The wheels of God's judgment, they're always turning, aren't they? They might turn slow. It might look like a nation's getting away with it. It might look like a leader's getting away with it. It might look like uh, so-and-so's never going to be judged, but Galatians 6, 7 says something different. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he'll also reap. The wheels of God's judgment will move. They do move. And uh, we know that, um, well, let's see. I don't, know how, I don't know who the oldest person in the world is, but I think someone died recently. I want to say like 118 or something like that. It was, uh, it was not that long ago. But if you take away uh, the oldest person in the world, no less than 118 years ago, no one on earth was alive. True? So go 118 years back, and everyone that lived from that time forward say, yes, God's judgment is real. Well, why would we know that? Because it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So the only people that would possibly think that the wheels of judgment don't turn are those that are still alive. That's it. Every other human being to live from Adam to 118 years ago, if they could be brought forward from the dead, would all testify, those in hell and those in heaven, would all say, his judgment actually turns faster than I thought. Because life is but a vapor, as scriptures say. It's but a vapor. So the wheels are always turning, always moving forward. Wheels, of course, are circular, Defining the beginning of an, and the end of a circle is impossible as well, isn't it? Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega. This, you know, we, any that's ever been to a wedding, uh, I do as well. The weddings that I've done, I almost always talk about the circle of a ring and the fact that there's no beginning of it and all those things. And that's true. You can't see the beginning of a circle. No beginning, no end. Understanding the timing and the working and the unveiling of God's judgment is also indiscernible, impossible to know the exact details of what God is doing. But the final judgment, the final judgment is coming, but even 
Jesus said, no man knows the day and hour, only the Father. Somehow, Jesus, even in the Trinity, and the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself being equal to God, and not only being equal to God, but he is God, he separates himself from, in the sonship of his role uh, in the Trinity, and from the sonship of his position, he separates himself from the knowledge that the Father has of the final judgment. Now, if anyone tries to explain to you they understand that, they don't either. They can't. None of us can. We just accept it by truth and faith that this is what the Lord says. Jesus is God. He can know the hour, and yet he leaves that with the Father, and yet he is the Father. The inner workings. You see the wheels working together. The inner workings of the, the Trinity itself, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's as if you know, it circles inside of circles, the inner workings of the Godhead itself. Who can understand but the Lord how any of it works and the eyes all around seeing everything? Is there anything God can't see in all directions? Like a sp- so what is the essence of sphere and the eyes are in every direction? See everything. Psalm 11:4 said, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyelids behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. His eyelids see everything man does. If people that think that they've done something and, and no one saw it, God saw it, didn't he? Nothing escapes his eye. Every secret, he not only sees the literal, uh, the, the tangible physical, but he sees every secret thought. We were talking about this again last night in our uh, men's study on grace uh, last night, the men's group, and, and I re-referenced uh, Ray Comfort's, um, uh, I thought, re- remarkable little nugget of wisdom the first time I heard him say it. He goes, imagine if someone showed your thoughts on the big screen for the last week. Even no, no born-again Christian would be thrilled about that. Would they? No born-again Christian you had that, I thought you liked me. That negative thought, that thing that shouldn't have been thought, that thing that shouldn't have been said, uh, that moaning and complaining, that envy, a little bit of jealousy. By the way, that's why we need grace every single day. Amen? Every day. Don't ever start finger pointing to all the other bad Christians. Because then you have a, like nine back at yourself, Right? But the eyes of God see not only the actions of men, but the thoughts of men. The eyes are everywhere, deep in the recesses of our thoughts. Second Chronicles 29.6 says, For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken Him. They've turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord, and they've turned their backs on Him. God is aware that Israel first, and then Judah, but collectively the entire nation state, uh, had turned their backs. His eyes watched every turning step of the nation. Genesis 6, 8 says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. See, the eyes of the Lord are not only looking and keeping a record of, of wrong for those that have resisted God, but those of us who have entered into a relationship by grace, His eyes of grace are upon us. Isn't that great? That we can actually go back and represent ourselves afresh and anew again and again and again, and we find grace in his eyes. His eyes are a wonderful thing uh, when we're in salvation. Uh, if we're in rebellion, that's a different story. We look at their movement in verses 19. Um, they lift uh, the, uh, verse 19 and through 21. The wheels go up. They go up from the earth. They're lifted up. Uh, Verse 21 says the same. They're lifted up together, the spirit of living in the wheels. And this reminds me of Psalm 68.3 that says, To him who rides on the heaven of heavens, which are of old, indeed he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Uh, Again, just the fact that this looks like that God himself uses on his own will, on his own wheels, whatever they are, that he rides through all of his creation arriving at any destination of course 
is everywhere all at once, and you, you wonder, well, why does he even need to do this? Well, he doesn't, but it's imagery for us to, and it's imagery for Ezekiel to understand that God can bring to bear any measure of his power in unstoppable. Let's look at the firmament here. Verse 22, the likeness of the firmament above the heads of living creatures like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. The firmament, in the Hebrew, this means an extended surface. An extended, like a stretched out surface. An extended surface. Uh, it even means solid. Uh, it means uh, a vault of heaven supporting the waters above. Something that has great strength to support but it uh, has expanse. It seems to be a solid surface in this particular case. doesn't have to be, though. Uh, but in any way, very strong. Um, and it's, he describes it as awesome crystal. Awesome crystal. The Hebrew word here for crystal means frost or ice, or ice crystal, which is very beautiful in and of itself. Uh, Job talks about that God has a treasury of, of snow and that uh, by his breath he causes the ice to form. Now, whether that doesn't mean, even though the Hebrew word here um, speaks of frost or ice or ice crystal, that is Ezekiel's description. Uh, whether, whether it's ice crystal or crystal that's actually the, um, uh, the material of, of, a, of a stone or a rock, that type of crystal. In either case, uh, the vision here is something translucent. It's strong. It's incredibly strong uh, because he calls it awesome crystal. Uh, it's strong. It seems to be translucent because he can see through it, but it clearly has a barrier between the creatures below and what's above. And the creatures, even though they are beneath this firmament, this firmament of awesome crystal, uh, they are in perfect harmony with what's taking place above. Uh, when you look at back at verse 24, uh, and then I went, I heard the noise of their wings the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult like the noise of an army. Interesting, what, what Ezekiel seems to describe, and this is the harmony between the creatures and what's above the firmament, and we see this again with the spirit of the wheels, the spirit of the creatures, but also the voice of the Almighty. He says that their wings sound like many waters, they sound like an army, but their wings also sound like the voice of of the Almighty. Perfect harmony. That they, the voice of God is in the wings, the army of God is in the wings, the sound of rushing waters is in the wings, all of these things, but the voice of God is actually magnified in them. The voice is coming from above the firmament, but it's actually reflected in their movement. Is the voice of God reflected in yours and my movement? Are we in harmony with our Lord and Savior who's sitting on his throne? He's made earth his footstool. Is what he is saying, is it coming out in our lives? Are we in harmony? When people see us, do they see that we're in harmony with the Lord Jesus? This ferment, though, clearly separated and tells us that the living creatures, although they have a job to do, they come in service of judgment, but they clearly are beneath the throne, aren't they? They're subordinate to the throne. They have great power. They make you and I look really weak, these creatures, don't they? One of these cherubim could probably take on, and this is, this is an obvious, every army in the world, no problem. Nuclear weapons would have no power against these creatures, would they? Not a big deal. They're greatly powered. But there's a massive 
chasm, if you will, the firmament showing that they are subordinate to the higher throne. Let's look at the throne. And a voice, uh, starting in verse 25, and a voice came, before we actually see the throne, look at the voice in 25, and a voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. Now we already know that the wings would make the sound of the Almighty, but this time it's not the wings with the voice of the Almighty, it's a specific voice speaking from the throne. And a voice came from above the firmament. Now the voice is not in the wings, but speaking from the area above the firmament. It's interesting that the first thing that Ezekiel mentions is a voice. He's going to get to the throne in the next verse. But the first thing he mentions is a voice. Why is that important? I believe it's important because we know that God's word, his spoken word, is so great. Everything. The creatures exist because he spoke them into existence. Amen? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Job 37, 2 says, hear, hear attentively. The thunder of his voice. Hear attentively. We've got to be attentive to his voice, don't we? It's easy to become distracted and not hear the voice of God. Be still and know that I am God. To hear the voice of God. Matthew 3.17 And suddenly a voice came from heaven. Where? Came. The voice came down out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Mark 9, 7, and a cloud overshadowed them. This is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Here you have the voice of God telling the men of God to listen to the Son of God. There on the Mount of Transfiguration. You think God's voice matters? I know that's overly redundant. The first thing... Ezekiel notices is the voice, the voice that comes from heaven, the voice that would say, this is my beloved son, hear him. Paramount to us is that we always hear the voice of the Lord. We don't want to just hear it. Jesus said a lot of people were hearers, but not doers, because soon Ezekiel's not only going to hear the voice of God, but he's going to have to go and do what the voice tells him to do, what the very Word of God tells him. You and I, it's not enough for just to hear the Word of God. We're, have, we're having to be obedient to do what He commands. To Him, to see, or to see, uh, to see God's glory would be incredible. But more important, though, is to hear and to heed and to obey His voice. To see God's glory would be unbelievable. But to God, more important for you and I and Ezekiel is to hear His voice and obey His voice. Jesus Himself said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Amen? What, what do we believe? We believe the Word of God. We actually have the very Word right here. We're reading it tonight. We have the Word. Not everybody got to touch Jesus' side like Thomas did. But we have the Word that tells us it's true. We have the Word to believe it's true and to hear it, to receive it, to have it hidden in our hearts that we might not sin against Him, to go forward in His power and His strength. Ezekiel, the first thing, is the voice. But it doesn't stop with the voice. Look at verse 26, and let's look at more of the throne here, and above the firmament, above their heads, so above the heads of the creatures, and above the firmament, at this other layer, this other level, above the firmament was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. 
sapphire. The sapphire is um, deep blue. I don't know if any of you have sapphires or have a ring with a sapphire, but it, uh, it's a deep blue color. This is what he sees, a throne that is deep sapphire blue, or that's the appearance of what he sees. Uh, we don't know exactly what it is, but that's his description. Back in Exodus chapter 24... We already cited Jacob and seen the angels ascend and descend on the ladder. Uh, Back in Exodus chapter 24, and we we were in the book of Exodus uh, for a couple of years, uh, in verses 9 and 10, you may recall when Moses, uh, they went up Mount Sinai, then Moses went up also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. That's what they saw under his feet. Now, Mount Sinai is not made of sapphire, but what I believe, and this is again my own personal view of the scriptures, and I know many others uh, believe uh, this as well, whatever you see the physical representation of God in human form, I believe that we are seeing the Son of God because Jesus is in the form of a man, uh, but the Father himself, um, although you could, you could argue that Daniel saw the actual image of the Father uh, in uh, his vision, but nevertheless, when they saw, remember Moses later wanted to see the Lord, and the Lord said, you couldn't see me, you can only see the train of my robe, But it says that they saw the Lord, so it's very possible they saw the Lord Jesus in his pre-incarnate, you know, or or um, pre-coming to the earth. And when his feet touched the mountain, it became what was underneath and became a sapphire stone, which this is what Ezekiel sees the throne to be, like in color of sapphire, this beautiful blue color. But Moses and uh, Aaron... And Nadab and Abihu also, when they saw the Lord come down, whether it was uh, the Lord Jesus Christ or if they saw some muted uh, image of the Father, uh, at any rate, the stone there became sapphire as well. So we, uh, we understand that this picture, this sapphire, uh, is significant that the Lord does have, at least somewhere in that throne area, is something that is this beautiful color of blue. And this is the best he can do to describe it. You'll also find, by the way, sapphire was in the breastplate of the priesthood, along with many other, or several other precious stones. And sapphire is also mentioned in the walls of the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So we know that uh, these colors, these, this beautiful color of blue is mentioned on the New Jerusalem walls. And of course, it's one of the stones in the breastplate uh, there as well. Now, let's take a look uh, for just a moment over, um, uh, let's look at tw- verse 27, then we'll uh, pop over just to kind of close things out in Revelation. Uh, verse 27, also from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around and within it, the appearance of his waist and downward as I saw, the appearance of fire with brightness all around. Now again, whether this is the, uh, the image of the Father or the image of Christ the Son, um, we do see similarities significantly. Turn over to Revelation chapter 1. Unlike, I don't claim to be dogmatic on that. Uh, I, I don't know, like I said, until we get to heaven. Was this God the Father? Is this God the Son? Or God just says yes to both. It's still the glory of the Lord because Jesus is the Lord and the Father is the Lord. So it's still the glory of the Lord no matter what. But um, there in Revelation 1, when, uh, when John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, 
and look at verse 13, uh, starting verse 12, that I turn to see the voice. There it is again. What did he hear first? The voice. He said, I, of course, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and Omega. He heard the voice of the Lord first before he sees the glory of the Lord. The voice is what he hears. I turn to see the voice. On uh, having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair white like wool. Daniel described the same thing, didn't he? When the ancient of days, he described the hair white like wool. As white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refired in the furnace. The voice, the sound of many waters, that of course is mentioned uh, relative to the angel wings as well. A lot of overlap, isn't there? Uh, between what John sees and what Ezekiel sees. Uh, the, the flaming furnace around the feet. Go back to uh, Ezekiel. Uh, upwards uh, from his waist downward, the appearance of fire from the waist down, and John says from the feet up, uh, but either way, <laughs> you see the same furnace or fire, uh, and then you take Daniel's, uh, what he sees, and you throw Daniel's uh, vision in, and you can tell that they all see relatively something of the same exact order, although again, God can uh, show different aspects of his glory to different men and not show any of them the full glimpse, if that makes any sense. But each of them gets something of what the Lord is showing. Then over in Revelation 4, look at Revelation chapter 4. And this is relevant uh, in the 28th verse back in Ezekiel when he says, it's like the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud. Look at Revelation chapter 4. And we see uh, something similar. Verse 3, And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. In appearance like an emerald. So here we have a throne that has a rainbow around it. Uh, Ezekiel mentions uh, like the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day, so is the brightness all around it. And again, the, the rainbow here in Revelation 4 goes around the throne as well. Uh, interesting that this rainbow is mentioned again both in chapter, uh, Revelation 4 as well as Ezekiel chapter 1. Uh, the rainbow, of course, first shows up uh, after the flood where God places it in the sky that he would never flood the earth again, and a great, um, a great reminder to us of God's mercy. But also, a rainbow is not only a reminder of his mercy, of what he, he's not going to reflood the earth again, but it's also a reminder of his judgment that it really does come if we continue to reje reject and resist. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming, days, uh, coming in the Son of Man. So this rainbow... Uh, mercy is a wonderful thing, but it also reminds us that God is a holy God and will not tolerate sin and rebellion. He's holy. That's what the angels say nonstop. Holy, holy, holy. His holiness. Mercy, yes. Holy, yes. They go hand in hand. Uh, you can't have one without the other. And then what is his reaction uh, well, it's very similar to John's uh, in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, John himself, uh, when he heard uh, Jesus, he fell on his own, uh, John fell on his own face as dead. Revelation 1, 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. Going back to Ezekiel chapter 1, So when I saw it, I fell on my face. Um, this is the reaction that anybody would have with the glory of God. You fall prostrate down. This is what Moses did at the burning bush. You go, you go down this way. Uh, the, um, the Word Faith uh, television guys, they always hit people, they go the other way. You know, That's not the direction. Uh, you go that way, that's not a good thing. It, when you see the glory of God, you go face first down. Uh, 
even like a dead man, John said. I mean, just... There's no other reaction to the holiness of God. The voice, so when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice. This is the same voice. The same voice that created the universe. Just speaking it. I mean, that's, that ought to amaze all of us if we never sit and think about it. Look up in the, to the heavens and look up into the sky and say, God just spoke it all into existence. According to Genesis 1.16, He made the stars also. Just spoke them into existence. Recent information gathered from research and some of the deep field images, uh, a somewhat recent German supercomputer simulation now puts the number of galaxies the number of galaxies at upwards of 500 billion galaxies. Each galaxy contains anywhere from 100 to 500 billion stars. Each galaxy. The Milky Way has about 400 billion stars just the Milky Way galaxy, but there's upwards of 500 billion. That's only what they can see. Every time they go deeper, they find more. And God spoke that into existence. That voice alone would have us fall prostrate, wouldn't it? If we literally heard the voice, I mean literally heard the voice of God, God wants us to be so attentive we can hear His voice, His still small voice through His Word. But if you were in Ezekiel's place, you'd fall, at your, you'd fall on your face as well as John did. God wants us to have the response that we are worshipers. Amen? Jesus said the hour is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He told that uh, there to the Samaritan woman. The hour has come that we would be those that would fall prostrate. But listen, be attentive that like the servants, like the, like the angelic creatures, that the Spirit of the Lord, the will of the Lord is in our lives, that we're moving in the direction that God is sending us, that uh, we're ready for both the tough messages that he's about to get starting in chapter 2. We start to get into the tough sledding. The tough message he's about to get, because you and I, we don't always have the easiest message to deliver either, do we? But the Lord wants us to go forward as willing servants Yielded to him. Let's close in prayer.